finding their seats. We got a few extra things going on this evening, so uh, we don't want to lose too much time. The only announcement that I that I have written on my list is the announcement related to the ladies' prayer meeting and lunch on Saturday. That will be at what time does that begin? Eleven o'clock on Saturday morning. There's a ladies' uh, prayer meeting and lunch, and then uh, there won't be anything for the chil- any children because no one signed up for that. So uh, make sure you come to that. That's a great opportunity to develop the ladies' ministry. The other thing that um, that you need to be aware of is that. Uh, the Chafer Conference is now about seven weeks away, so be ready for that. We're going to need some volunteers, people to do some transportation, a few other things, so be thinking how you can do that. Everybody in this congregation always does an incredible job stepping up to uh, take on certain responsibilities to make that conference happen, and so this is going to be uh, an exceptionally, uh, exceptionally good conference I say that every year. People come and say, oh, it's better than any of the other ones. That can't go on for long. And all it does is set me up for failure. That's that's all it does. It's one of these days we're going to go, wow, you crashed and burned. All right. So that's that's it for announcements. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. And then he said, thy word is truth. Now, how much of his word is truth? There's the question. Is it 80%, 90%, 92.5%? How much of it is truth? Jesus says, makes a definitive statement, thy word is truth. And that's what we've been studying. If you can remember back that far, it was six weeks ago that we had our last class in First Peter talking about inerrancy and infallibility. And if I were of a malicious mindset, I would call on Gene Brown to give us a definition for inerrancy and infallibility to see what he remembers from his notes. But I won't do that, Gene. <laughs> I'm just feel, feeling a little... The, yeah, that's right, the evil going on in my head. Anyway, we've got a special evening tonight because I'm going to give a little report. I said on Sunday that I would give a report Tuesday on the trip to uh, Kiev, and I didn't because there was so much to cover. We have a lot to cover, but Jim's here. And so some of the things that I would say that would be sort of third person, he, he will give us a little bit of a first person report. And we'll do that at the beginning before we get into the word. So before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are prepared to worship a righteous God and that we are in right relationship with him through confession of sin that will cleansed of all unrighteousness. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray.
Our Father, it's a great privilege we have to come together in freedom in this nation to study your word, to really think it through and to work through the implications and the application and that we might have our thinking transformed uh, as we continue to grow, conforming, not being conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. Father, we're thankful for Jim and his ministry, the ministry and the impact that they've had over there in uh, in Kiev in Ukraine. We continue to pray for uh, the various challenges that that ministry faced, challenges all biblically sound ministries face today. And we pray that you would uh, encourage us through the teaching of your word that we might know and have our strength, have our faith strengthened in our trust in your word as the absolute truth. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> when I was, uh, when I was in seminary, first year I was in seminary, I roomed with three guys who were going to Dallas Bible College, and there were some girls who went to Dallas Bible College who lived in the same apartment complex. And there was always some kind of argument or something going on between a couple of my roommates and a couple of these girls, and and one day we were having some sort of discussion, and I said something, and this girl turned around. She said, well, you're just like Ron. You're another militant biblicist. I always liked that term. You know, I'm not a fundamentalist. I'm not an evangelical. I'm a militant biblicist. That's why I like Jim Myers, because Jim's another militant biblicist, and, and our numbers are shrinking. So that's one reason that, that Jim and I have always enjoyed uh, working together, ministering together, and why I go over there every year. There are several things that go on when I go over there. One is I usually teach at their church. This year I went over to um, Jatomer, which is a town of about three or 400,000, located about 120 miles or so to the west of Kiev, and that's where... Uh, Eager Smolyar, one of the graduates from the Word of God Bible Institute, works, and Eager it works with a church there that is, uh, they have a building that, that was uh, made available to them many, many years ago, and it was originally a Lutheran church built at the turn of the last century, early 1900s. And so it's a great facility, and then through the gracious donations of a number of uh, Christians in Holland, uh, they were able to build a new building and a Sunday school building and all these other things along with the old church. And so they really have a wonderful facility, and it's the the largest uh, Baptist church in Jatomer. And so Eager has a great ministry, and we support Eager as one of our uh, one of our missionaries and send uh, financial support his way um, every uh, every month. And so I just wanted to give a report. I spoke at the church there. The pastor is 87 years old, and like some 87-year-old pastors, uh, doesn't want to give up the reins and uh, move into retirement, even though now he's spending at least half a year with his son who lives in Santa Barbara, California. So uh, that gives the assistant pastor, so to speak, a little freer reign while uh, they're there. But uh, anyhow... So Eager gets an opportunity to teach about four to six times a week, depending on things that are going on. And he's just one of several graduates of the Word of God Bible College that are really having impact. On Sunday morning, I talked about Sasha, who came, who was down in Donetsk and the area down there and worked for Denver Seminary. 
Uh, campus there for, for a number of years until the Russians moved in. And then there's another student, Zhenya, I can never remember their last names. What's Zhenya's last name? Savchenko. And Zhenya has a tremendous ministry. And so it's great to see how they've spread out over Ukraine from this school that Jim had a vision to start some 15 years ago, and there have, it's a two-year curriculum, and he runs them through it, and I think it's one of the best curricula that I have seen, and it really, one of the emphasis is that these kids have to memorize a tremendous amount of scripture each year, and that's part of determining whether or not they can graduate, so that's, that's really good. That's a lost emphasis today, is, is memorizing scripture. They have to read the Bible all the way through, I don't know how many times, and uh, at least a couple of times, and they are taught the original languages. They're taught Greek and they're taught Hebrew. Um, anyway, Jim will give a little report on some of the transition things that are going on with the ministry uh, there. But it was it was a good time, and uh, I taught dispensationalism and or covenants and dispensationalism this year. I teach that every other year, and then in between I teach on rewards and judgments. And so it's good because that curriculum has pretty much been set, and it's not like I have to do a whole lot of work to uh, prepare for that when I go over that, which allows me time. I always set some goals to to t- have some t- a lot of time alone. There's no televo- television, there's no telephone, there's email now and a few other things that are distracting. But generally, I get a lot of time to catch up on a lot of reading and looking at different things, and, and that's good. Every pastor needs that. There was a um, comment made on a on a Facebook page, Bob Bolander's at Austin Bible Church, and he was on vacation, and he was having to take from his vacation to study and prepare for Sunday morning. And I made the comment that I learned in my first year as a pastor that if you're going to take a vacation, and every pastor needs to take vacations, and ought to take vacations because it gives him time to think and reflect. You can't have a vacation in before Sunday because if Sunday's coming, then on Thursday you have to start thinking about what you're going to do on Sunday, and that wipes out your vacation. You're having to work. You're having to study. Not that I'm advocating this, but just to tell you why this is important, one of the most significant pastors in the English language, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was the pastor of one of the largest churches and one of the most influential churches in England in the Victorian era, has a there's a book out called Lectures to My Students, because they had training there. And he advocated that every pastor needs to have at least three months vacation every summer to study. Because he understood the principle that when you're cranking out three, four, five times a week, you don't have enough time to sit and reflect and let it really soak through your own soul, and you need to have time to be up. Now, I don't think that's viable in our culture. Things were very different in the slowed-down Victorian era. It took you a few days to get somewhere on vacation. Now you just fly somewhere. But anyhow... Um, that's important, and so I, that's one reason I go over there, and I value that uh, that time, and it's a good time of ministry there. It's a good time uh, for me to just reflect and catch up on some some various issues. I asked Jim to say, come up and say a couple of things before we get into the Word about just how things are going right now and uh, what is what he anticipates coming up. 
and trip to Africa and whatever else. So, Eddie, you'll need to turn the microphone on. There you go. That's the answer to your question. <laughs> well, good evening. We're back here for just a short time. I'm going to go up to Chicago on Sunday, and uh, we'll have the 50th reunion of my graduating class from Moody Bible Institute, and I'll go see how many survivors there are uh, who were able to make it, and looking forward to that, and then I will be speaking at a Bible conference in southern Indiana, and then we'll fly back to Houston for a day and then go back to Kiev. It is really an exciting time for us right now. This is uh, the busiest I have ever been in my life. This uh, past season starting in September, went back there and in September and October I taught six weeks uh, either at our Bible college or at a seminary over in eastern Ukraine. I went to Zambia for three weeks in December, where I had three conferences there, teaching four or five hours every day, and that was very exciting. And came back to Kiev and uh, have been teaching there. We got the conference this week. When I get back to Kiev, then I'll be teaching at the Bible College again. Then I'm going to be going back to eastern Ukraine to teach a seminary course there. I come back, I'll go to Zhitomer for a week to teach a course there. In April, uh, let's see, when do I go to Brazil? March. March. Going to Brazil for three weeks in March to teach Bible conferences there. In April, I'll go back to Zambia for two more weeks to, to teach there. And somewhere in between, I've got to teach another course at the Bible College. So uh, I haven't had a lot of time uh, to just sit down and relax, but it's been great. And I am so excited about doing this, and I am so grateful that the Lord has opened the doors of opportunity and I am very grateful that he has given me the health and the strength to be able to do this. And I want to say thank you for praying. And I am just so blessed when people walk up to me and say, we've been praying for you. How is this? How is that? And I know that you have seen our request and you have brought these before the Father. And I am so grateful for your part in our ministry because I can't do this alone. And we need someone to hold the rope on this end. You know, it's no good to have a rope tied around your waist if nobody's holding the other end. So thank you for holding the rope and holding us before the throne of grace. What's going on in Ukraine? It's uh, turmoil there, just as it is here in America, as far as politics are concerned. Things are not... Uh, copacetic there. People are disturbed with the prime minister. They've got billboards out now telling him to hit the road, Jack. Uh, we, we don't want you in office anymore. 
uh, things are not good as far as the economy is concerned. Part of this is related to the situation with Russia. It's also related to just bad economic decisions that are being made. Uh, and so from that standpoint, it's not good. The military situation there, I don't know. Uh, the Russians still have a large military presence just to the eastern border of Ukraine. Uh, the Russians are occupying yet uh, a number of cities in eastern Ukraine. And what's going to happen there, I don't know. Russia still has control of the Crimean Peninsula. And uh, the president of Ukraine says that Ukraine is going to take that back from Russia this year. How he plans to do it, I don't know. Uh, is there going to be fighting? I don't know. Right now, things are fairly calm. Uh, there doesn't seem to be panic and fear at this point. But I can tell you that there are a lot of people in eastern Ukraine who are suffering because so much of the infrastructure there has been damaged by the fighting. There are a lot of people yet in some of the cities in the east who do not have electricity, do not have running water, and do not have heat in their buildings. And I can tell you it's been cold. Robbie will tell you it's cold. We were down in single digits here last week. And uh, I guess it was the day before we flew here, warmed up to 24, and I asked Phyllis if I needed a coat when I went out. It uh, felt so balmy at 24 because we had been down around zero. But uh, it's not as bad as uh, up in uh, Connecticut. <laughs> and places up in the northeast U.S. Uh, other things that are happening, week before last, they told us at the place we had been meeting, where the church had been meeting for more than six years, this is your last Sunday here. They wouldn't give us two weeks' notice. They just said, you're done. And... Uh, of course, they did this. It was after church. We didn't have time to announce it to the people. And so we had to go out and scramble and try to find another place to meet. And so we spent several days looking around trying to find a suitable meeting place. And the Lord provided this for us. We didn't get it until Friday. And so we had to try to inform everybody in the church where we would be meeting. And actually, it's a very convenient place, and the rent is the right price. And uh, so we met there last Sunday. We were very pleased with the venue, and so the Lord has uh, provided that for us. Thank you for praying, and I know that you have been praying because some of you walked up and said, have you found a place to meet yet? Yes, praise God, he has provided the place for us. Um, the only downside of what we found is that we have to meet at 9 in the morning instead of our 11 o'clock that we're accustomed to. It's not a problem for me, but some people say, well, we don't like to come so early, but they came anyway, and... Uh, but the owner of the place said that perhaps in a month or two we might be able to meet at 11 o'clock. There's a group that meets uh, in that same room at 11 o'clock, and uh, 
they may be moving, so we may be able to get the better time slot. Uh, another change that has taken place is with Nina. Nina became a student of mine back around 1998 when uh, there used to be what was called the, uh, what do they call it, uh, Ukraine Bible Institute. And uh, I taught there. Nina was a student. And we started the church, and she came with uh, with our church. We started the Bible college, and she went through the Bible college, and um, then she stayed on to, to work with us. She became secretary for the college, and this is a woman that has an amazing facility for languages, and she just absolutely fell in love with the original languages of Scripture, and I will tell you that she can read Greek and Hebrew probably better than 99% of the pastors in America. She, she's amazing. And uh, she's also a very gifted teacher. And so she has been teaching our language courses for uh, a number of years, and she's very good at it. But <laughs> she decided that after 15 years of doing this, she wanted to change, and so she will leave for Israel tomorrow, and she's going to work in a ministry in the old city in Jerusalem. Uh, and I'm saying, okay, what are we going to do for a language teacher? But we have it set up uh, where she's going to be able to do this via the Internet. And so uh, I was sweating bullets there. What am I going to do, uh, at least until the end of the year? But uh, we're going to have uh, these classes continue without a break. So she'll be able to do this from Israel. So we're just delighted about that. So uh, we have uh, a wonderful time to be alive. It's exciting. All sorts of things going on in the world. The world is a mess. And this is all over the world. I don't care where you go. Things are really in turmoil politically, economically, uh, just about any way you can think of it. Ethically, morally, it's just a horrible, horrible world. But we know who's in control, and it's exciting that we are here at this time because no matter what the world's situation, I know God has a plan for me. God has a purpose for me. God wants you to be alive right now because he wants you to do something in the midst of all of this mess. And I'm just so grateful that we can have a part in that. And I'm also grateful for this church, one of the few churches left in the world where you have sound Bible teaching, verse by verse, exegetical, expository, categorical teaching. This is a rarity. And you have a rare opportunity and you have a great privilege of getting this kind of teaching because this is the only thing that's going to prepare you to be able to stand up in the midst of all the turmoil that's going around you. So I appreciate this church and your ministry and you are having an impact also all around the world and it's dependent on your faithfulness. I'm glad to see you here. It's a blessing for me to come and see you here. Robert? Thank you, guests.
one of the uh, ways in which different things happen in God's plan is that about five years ago when I was in Kiev, we had uh, I met Idan Pesahovich, who was here just a month ago, you remember, gave a report. Well, as a result of going to the Sachnut, or the Jewish Agency for Israel there, uh, Jim went over and uh, met with them, and Nina found out about it. She started going over there and take some conversational Hebrew classes to strengthen her Hebrew. Then they asked her to teach children Hebrew over there. Then she was so good at that, they started sending her, giving her scholarships to go to Israel during the summer to study uh, Hebrew, and that has led to her change right now. So you never really know how things are going to work out. And one of the things Jim and I did when we were there this time was we went down to look at, to uh, find out about this Jewish orphanage and school in a town called Bilitserkov. And there's pictures of those kids in that orphanage up on the uh, DBM website on the news page, and you can go take a look at that. But this is a, a, a Christian ministry called... I think it's the 59, is that what it was, 59.9 Trust, something like that, that is working. They come out of England and Holland, and they're working with these to provide a lot of staff for these uh, kids that really come from some real tragic backgrounds, and the work that they were doing was just uh, just incredible. But that was an interesting thing we did while we were there. All right, open your Bibles with me to... Um, um, well, if you look, open your Bible to anything, open them to 2 Timothy 3.16. And I'm going to get off the mic and get on my other mic. Okay. All right. We're in 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11. Now, what happens, if you've been around for a while, as you know, is we go through any passage verse by verse that we'll come to certain passages that touch on certain significant topics or doctrines. And so in the midst of a verse-by-verse exposition of a book, I will frequently stop and we will pause and do a topical study on uh, something that is significant. And we started this back about seven or eight weeks ago, but we had a break because of Christmas and my trip to, uh, to Kiev. So the last time I taught this uh, in First Peter was on December the 10th, so that's been about about six weeks, and so we're going to have a little review because we don't all remember. I had to go back and listen to the last 15 minutes of the lesson this afternoon so I could figure out where I stopped and what I was teaching and try to regain the uh, flow of thought that I had uh, six weeks ago. But we're studying this doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy because this continues to be a very heated uh, argument, and as I pointed out, if you remember reading from sections of a couple of articles that Bob Wilkin wrote for their uh, uh, Grace in Focus uh, newsletter, that evangelicals today have basically slipped their anchor on the Word of God while they still affirm inerrancy, they have gradually managed to erode and dilute the meaning of that, and they've done this through uh, through hermeneutics. That was warned about back in the late 70s when they had the uh, meetings in, in Chicago. The International Council on Biblical Inerrancy met, and they wrote this statement on the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy, which you can go online and you can read. 
But uh, a couple of years later, they came out with a second volume. They published several books that came out on inerrancy in the around the period of 1976, 1977 or so. And then in 78, they published a, a, a huge two-inch thick book called Hermeneutics, Inerrancy, and, and the Bible, and they foresaw at that time that what you have, you can hold to inerrancy, but if you come up with certain ideas uh, related to genre interpretation or um, different ways in which you want to uh, try to interpret it, well, it's poetry, it's, um, it's it, some kind of idiomatic language. It doesn't really mean literal history or a literal event. And so uh, as a result of that, you saw this kind of erosion take place. And so it's, it's important to go back and look at this. And it's important for us as believers because whenever we review a doctrine like this and go through in a little more detail, it should be reminding us that that we really do have a solid rock of truth that we rest upon, the Word of God, that it is absolute truth, it is true truth, it is earth-shattering revolutionary truth, and it is due to the Bible and the influence of the Bible that we have everything that we have in our lives today. If Western civilization had not been transformed by the impact and the influence of, of Christianity, starting with the apostles, Paul, when he went on his journeys and first took the gospel across, uh, uh, across into Europe from Asia Minor, if it had not been for that, we wouldn't have the music tradition that we have in in Western civilization. We wouldn't have the concepts of law that we have. We wouldn't have the concepts of freedom that we have. We wouldn't have the concepts of literature that we have. We wouldn't have the concept of personal identity and the importance of the individual and all of the things that we treasure as part of of our Christian beliefs that are under attack today, and I read a a a and was uh, spent some time when I was gone looking at some of the um, uh, videos. I think it was the same group that did the expose, sort of the undercover expose of the Planned Parenthood uh, body part selling thing, has also done something related to the Common Core curriculum, and one of the things that came out as they were uh, secretly filming the comments from the, uh, publishers, people representing publishing houses uh, who are publishing this Common Core curriculum, is they hate Christianity. Christianity's got to go. We've got to get Christianity out of the history of America. We've got to quit thinking about what those dead white guys thought about with the Constitution. The Constitution is no longer relevant. These are their ideas, and Christianity has got to go, and that's their viewpoint. As far as they're concerned, it's all about money, it's all about making money, and it's all about re-educating and transforming the thinking of the kids in school so that they no longer think about or know anything about the founding of, of America. And they are rewriting history, and this is what happens whenever there is a true social revolution is they rewrite history. This is what the Bolsheviks did, the uh, Soviets did this. They, they rewrote history in order to have their own narrative to, to explain everything. And so there, out of that comes a focused assault on the Bible and biblical truth. And we as believers better know why we believe what we believe 
from the text of Scripture because people in our everyday lives are going to uh, question us. And as we'll see when we get in a little further in our study in First Peter, Peter says we have to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. Why do we believe the Bible is the Word of God? And just to give you just a, a quick incident of this, I go to a chiropractor, and it turns out that this chiropractor uh, uh, had a conversation, I had no idea of this, with, with uh, one of my uh, uh, cro- uh, former cro- CrossFit coaches. And this CrossFit coach and I were talking one day, he kept telling me about this chiropractor that he went to and how this chiropractor was really interested in always talking about the creation-evolution debate and said so had told this uh, guy that he needed to uh, listen to that debate that was between uh, Bill, Bill Nye and uh, who's the guy with uh, uh, Answers in Genesis? Ken Ham. With Bill Nye and Ken Ham. And that, so he, he went home and listened to it, and he thought, well, because he has a fairly decent Christian background, said, so, well, Ken Ham really won that debate. And so he kept telling me about this chiropractor that he went to that was really interested in this. Finally, one day I said, well, where is this guy? So he's over in the Heights. Really, my chiropractor's in the Heights. What's this guy's name? Oh, that's the same guy I go to. Somebody else in this congregation goes to him. And there's two or three people that go to First Baptist, Second Baptist that um, uh, they go to him. And they're all talking to this guy about, about creation. And And he asked me a question not long ago. We were uh, off-site, and he asked me a question about, oh, well, you know, bringing up these questions about the gospel and why the, you can't really trust the Bible and all this kind of stuff. Now, can you answer those questions? You need to be able to answer those questions. And and I'm trying to train this young guy that was a, a CrossFit coach to answer these questions, and, and he's really catching on fire. He says to me, I want to know what you know. We've got to be able to give an answer for the hope that is in us. When somebody says something that they've heard and they're just regurgitating what they've heard on the Discovery Channel or the History Channel or one of those liberally controlled uh, networks that just goes and talks to to people who are really hostile to the Bible and don't believe anything about it, think it's just another religious book like the Bhagavad Gita or the Book of Mormon or some ancient uh a Mesopotamian text or something like that. We've got to know why the Bible is different. So that's why we're stopping and looking at this. There is a challenge. We are being attacked from inside the evangelical church, from, from seminary professors at Dallas Seminary, Denver Seminary, at almost every evangelical seminary you can na- name. And that's one reason we're going to make this a focus of the conference at the at the Chafer Conference in 2017, a guy I have that's going to be the keynote speaker is a guy named David Farnell, and Tommy Ice was with Farnell at a prophecy conference last weekend, and Tommy keeps up with this stuff about as much as I do, and Tom, Tommy and I were talking yesterday, and Tommy said, I knew things were bad, but after listening to Farnell last week, things are horrible. said, I can't in good conscience recommend anybody to go to, and he listed two or three seminaries that you'd be familiar with. He said, I can't in good conscience recommend anybody to go to those seminaries now at all. And that's the danger we're in. So we're under assault from inside the camp, and we're under assault from outside the camp. And so we have to be fortified in our souls and know the truth. So we started off in First Peter 1, 10 through 11, 
talks about the process of inspiration. The, the prophets were, re, were given revelation from God, but they also inquired and searched carefully. So that introduces the process of inspiration, but they still had to study it. It wasn't some sort of magical thing where they automatically understood everything that they were given, but it's revealed by God. So we started and we looked at the, I'm going to run through about the first 13 slides real fast just to review to get us back where we were. We looked at this definition and it starts with the underlying phrase, God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture. Inspiration is primarily the domain and responsibility of God the Holy Spirit who originates the text. Uh, the word inspiration translates the Greek word theopneustos, which literally means God breathed. It originates with God. He exhales it into the souls of the writer of Scripture. They inhale it and then exhale it into, into Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17 is a benchmark verse. And the reason I add verse 15 is because t- Paul is talking to Timothy and reminds him that from childhood he knew the sacred writings, that is the holy writings, those that were set apart, and that's how he refers to the Old Testament. They are distinctive writings. There's a set group, and this indicates that there is a limited number of books. It's the Old Testament canon. It did not include the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha are a group of about 12 to 14 books, depending on uh, which group uses them, that are related really to the Old Testament there and the intertestamental period, they were not part of the Jew- the Jews never accepted them as authoritative, but they're good for history. They're good for some other things, and unfortunately, Jerome included them in his translation of the Vulgate, even though in his preface, which nobody reads, he said those books weren't inspired. But everybody, re- well, since they're there with the other sixty-six, they must be. So over time, they got accepted, and finally at the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church affirmed that the Apocrypha was part of the Word of God, but it's not. Paul is only talking about the 39 books that we have in our own Old Testament. They're the ones that are breathed out by God. So we started looking at this last time, that it's God the Holy Spirit who is the one who supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture. Peter in Second Peter says, know this first, first, that's the word protos. This is your starting point. Every philosophical system has certain, um, certain foundational beliefs. That's their starting point. Certain assumptions, certain axioms that they start with that are, um, <clears throat> that are identified as uh, sort of unprovable assumptions. And this is where we start as a believer. You start with the Word of God, assuming it to be true. The Bible never starts off with, we're going to try to prove that this is the Word of God. It's self-evident. It is self-authenticating. And so we believe that. And we looked last time at Second Peter 1, 20, 21, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Now, that doesn't mean that's not talking about the individuals that are reading it don't aren't interpreting it privately, but that the writers of Scripture were not generating this from their own ideas. Uh, it's the 
there's a double use of the verb pharaoh there for prophecy never came or was carried by the or brought by the will of man. It doesn't originate with the will of man. It originated with God. Holy men of God. Holy means that they were set apart. They were chosen by God. Spoke as they were moved. That's the word uh, pharaoh. That they were uh, as they were moved. That's the aorist passive. This block on the left relates to the verb of just above it. They were moved by the Holy Spirit. And that word is also used to describe how winds drive a ship. They're unseen, but they direct the ship across the ocean. So it's that idea. They didn't know where they were going, but they were being driven by an unseen force, God the Holy Spirit. And then following that, we looked at various other scriptures that affirmed that the author of scripture was the Spirit of the Lord. Second Samuel 23, 2, the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. Passages like um, Mark 12, 36 that refer back to uh, what David has written, the Lord said to my Lord, said at my right hand, that's Psalm 110, 1, and that he said this by the Holy Spirit. Acts 1, 16, Peter says, Men and brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand. The Holy Spirit is the author of scripture. Then we closed out last time looking at passages such as 1 Timothy 5, 18, which quotes from a, from an Old Testament passage, Deuteronomy 25, 4, and a New Testament gospel passage, Matthew 10, 10, and treats them as of equal authority. The Gospel of Matthew, by the time Paul writes 1 Timothy towards the end of his ministry, the Gospel of Matthew has already been written, and it is accepted as, a, as being as authoritative as the Old Testament. Then we looked at passages like 1 Corinthians 2.10, 2.13, uh, 1 Corinthians 2.10, 1 Corinthians 2.13, and 14.37, talking about the fact that these things are from God. They originate with God. Okay, so this is the first part of the definition, the God, the Holy Spirit, so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture. So he is the member of the Trinity who is the primary author, the divine author of both Old and New Testament. The Scripture has two authors, the human author and the divine author, and we're going to see how they worked uh, work together. Now, we studied about prophets the other day. A prophet was a person who spoke or wrote what God told him to say. It's simple, rational process. Now, of course, an unbeliever who rejects supernaturalism would say, well, that's not rational. Only thing he can think of is sort of the irrationalism of the mystics. But I pointed out in our study on Tuesday night in Samuel that there's no evidence of mysticism, trance-like behavior, ecstasy, no sense of anybody trying to uh, uh, work themselves up to generate some sort of uh, mind uh, mental situation where they could then get in touch with God. That's the M.O. of the pagans, but it's not the M.O. that you find uh, in, in the Scripture. And as we <clears throat> read this, we see there's two authors. There's a divine author, which we focused on so far. Then there's the human author, and this is what's brought about in Zechariah 7.12. Yes, they made their hearts like flint, 
talking about the Jews who hardened their hearts. And Zechariah says, refusing to hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, that would refer to God the Father, the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Now, the former prophets are the early prophets. The prophets, uh, Moses would be an early prophet, uh, Joshua, uh, who probably wrote most of Joshua, whoever wrote Judges, and First Samuel, probably Samuel, and some of those associated with him wrote Judges in First Samuel, Second Samuel, Kings. These were the early prophets. The latter prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, uh, and so forth. So the Lord of hosts is sent by his Spirit through the former prophets. So you have the divine author who originated it and then the human author. So how does God do that? Uh, what is the technique? And... Uh, one of the things that people often think is it's dictation. Now, there are some things that were either dictated or personally written by God. He wrote the Ten Commandments, the law that was written by the finger of God, we're told, in, in Exodus. But that is only restricted to the, the 613 commandments being dictated by God directly. The rest of it was, was not uh, so done. It was done through various writers. We don't know uh, what's all of the sources that Moses had before him, but there's an indication in Genesis that we study. You see these verses that are repeated again and again, and such. This is what happened to the generations of uh, <clears throat> of the universe, and this is what happened to the generations of Adam. This is what happened to the generations of Noah. This is what happened to the generations of. Uh, uh, of uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the way through. And that indicates that these patriarchs were probably keeping historical records that were passed down and were kept and were available to Moses to use under divine inspiration. So he has these sources, and through God the Holy Spirit is taking from this material and being guided and directed by God the Holy Spirit to write a divine editorial on the history of mankind from God's original creation in Genesis 1-1 uh, all the way through the uh, the exodus and the redemption of the Jewish, Jewish people. And Moses wrote that in his style. And there's evidence where Moses tells of what is going on. We'll see this as we go along. And then he'll comment on it. But his, his comment is just as much uh, inspired by God as what God says. That's the problem with the red-letter Bible. It makes people think that those red-letter statements by Jesus in the Gospels are somehow more significant than the rest of the Bible. But they're not. What, Jesus Christ said it all. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth is just as much a statement of the Trinity as any red-letter statement in the Gospels. But how does God do this? He does this without destroying or overriding or removing the personality, the education, the background of each individual uh, writer of Scripture so that God's truth is able to become incarnate in terms of the words of the original words of the manuscripts uh, without violating 
the personality of the writers or being tainted by the fact that they're sinners. It's sort of like the incarnation of the living word, that Mary is a fallen sinner, and yet God worked out a way whereby there would be a miraculous conception and birth of the living word who would not be tainted by Adam's original sin through his mother. And so that which was given birth by Mary was without sin. And that which is written by the prophets and the apostles is without error. Norm Geisler is one of the outstanding defenders of inerrancy today. And in his systematic theology, he writes, Furthermore, judging by the various uh, vocabulary, grammar, styles, figures of speech, and human interests of the various authors, God did not disregard the personality and culture of the biblical writers when he providentially guided them to be the vehicles through which he revealed his written word to humankind. On the contrary, the Bible is a thoroughly human book in every respect, except that it is without error. So there he recognizes you have vast vocabulary differences between Moses and and, and Samuel. The writer of Samuel has a very earthy vocabulary. Uh, he uses a lot of strong, descriptive, barnyard language that is not the high language of Nehemiah or uh, or Moses. So it's very different. We have to remember these authors came from different backgrounds. Abraham came from a wealthy family, uh, aristocracy from the city of Ur of the Chaldees. Moses was trained in the highest education uh, and highest schools conceivable in Egypt. He got the best of their education. Joshua was a former slave who rose to be a, 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 a brilliant general. Amos, or Amos, a, one of the minor prophets, was a herdsman and a fig farmer. Peter was a fisherman. Paul was a rabbi. Daniel was trained to be a bureaucrat to serve the uh, king of Babylon and rose to the position of prime minister. Uh, <clears throat> Luke, uh, uh, Moses came out of an Egyptian, pagan Egyptian culture. Abraham came out of the culture and the paganism of, of Ur of the Chaldees, where it talks about his family. His fathers and his grandfathers were sun and moon worshipers. Uh, Luke was reared in the Greco-Roman culture. They wrote over a period of 2,000 years with no contradiction and talked about the same themes, some of the most controversial themes in all of human history, and yet they did not contradict each other. So God is powerful enough and great enough to where he's not limited by the individual personalities or styles of the individuals, and he uses that which is very different. You compare that to the Quran. It's given in in a, a verbal revelation one time to Muhammad, and he doesn't even write anything down for about 50 years. You look at the Book of Mormon, and it's given in one shot 
to Joseph Smith, and he's got to have a special pair of glasses to be able to read it and interpret it. And he's writing this down in the 1820s, and he's writing it down in early 17th century Elizabethan English. Doesn't even make sense. And so we see quite a contrast between the Bible and how it's written and revealed and other uh, religious writings. So God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture that without waiving their human intelligence, their vocabulary, their individuality, their literary style, their personality, their personal feelings, or any other human factor. Now, the reason I'm quoting this whole thing is because this is what's in the doctrinal statement of West Houston Bible Church, which you may or may not have read, or you just read it at one time and thought, well, that sounds great. But now we're understanding all the nuances of what is written there. So, So God uses the individual human being, and guarantees that what he wrote in the original was without error. So we go on to read, His complete and coherent message to mankind was recorded with perfect accuracy. So key words there are that it's complete. It is complete. It is total. It is um, sufficient. It's more than enough for us to learn about every detail of life. It teaches us how to think about everything. God didn't say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're only going to teach you about these things. There's a little bit about law, but we're not saying, we don't address certain areas like music is is going to be neutral or technology is going to be neutral or labor is going to be neutral. God doesn't say that. It addresses every area of God's creation because God is the omniscient creator, can inform us to give us a framework to be able to think about everything in his creation without leaving something out. The reason I point that out about music is that you often run into people today, especially in discussions about uh, contemporary worship, who think that somehow music as music, is neutral, and that you can take the Word of God and put it with any kind of music, and it somehow sanctifies the music. And that shows a tremendous ignorance of philosophy. It shows a tremendous ignorance of God's Word and God's creation. But when you have a diluted, truncated view of creation, then you can get away with that. That's why creation is so important. It's not some secondary doctrine. Again and again in the Old Testament, God describes himself as the God who made the heavens, the earth, and the seas, and all that is in them. That's what distinguishes him from all the other gods and goddesses in the, uh, in the other, other cultures. So the Bible teaches us how to think about every detail of life, whether it's uh, technology, engineering, mathematics, Nothing is neutral. There's nothing left out. And, and as, as um, one of the things that has developed in terms of a Christian culture, especially back in the 1600s, 1700s, and 1800s, was Christians who, on the basis of this understanding of Scripture, laid the foundation for modern science and modern math is because they understood that in a world God created, there would be stability and there would be order, and there would be predictability. But in a world of chaos and chance, you don't have stability, you don't have predictability, 
And so, therefore, you can't really develop uh, science. So his message is complete, addressing every area of human intellectual activity, from politics to sociology to psychology, and you don't need anything else. That doesn't mean that we can't learn some things from either uh, use of reason or the use of empiricism, but it's done within the framework and on the basis of divine revelation. Second, it, it points out it's coherent. That means we can understand it, that it all fits together. There's not logical inconsistencies between the Pentateuch and the minor prophets or the gospels and revelation. It all fits perfectly together. It's all harmonious. There are no places that are, that, that can't be understood. That now there may be places that are a little more difficult for us to understand because we're reading something about a culture and a situation that occurred some, uh, 2000 or 3000 years ago in quite a different culture and another language. But it's under, it can be understood. The starting point is we can understand it. That doesn't mean we will, but it is all designed to be understood. God is not trying to obfuscate his truth. He's not trying to hide it from us. He has written this. It's revelation, which means to unveil, to disclose something. And so the assumption is that it is designed to illuminate to enlighten, and to educate. God wrote to communicate specific information. And he's, he's not writing to be vague or to be tricky or to hide uh, his word. Now, there are times when it is written that way. For example, Jesus used the parables to sort of cloak his word, but from unbelievers, not from the believers, not from his disciples. It's a message, we read here, that it is a message to mankind. It is written to humanity. It is not written to uh, any other life form. It's not written to Klingons or Vulcans or, you know, Wookiees or anybody else. It's written to humanity because mankind is is what? Created in God's image. Now, that's so important. Because God creates man in his image and likeness so that he's creating him with the right receptors in his brain so that God's communication can be received and understood. So that if you're producing an FM signal and all they have is an AM receiver, then no communication is going to take place. God created man with the right equipment to be able to receive and understand God's communication. And see, what you have in so much uh, religion, and that includes religiosity in Christianity, is the idea that this is so difficult to understand. And as soon as you hear that, it's not long before, well, let's just all kind of get together and hug each other and sing Kumbaya uh, so that we can have harmony. But it's always at the expense of truth. It's always at the expense of truly understanding God's word, and it uh, idolizes the emotions rather than focuses on the, the uh, an assumption that God wrote this to be understood and to be clear. And usually what happens is that people, the people know exactly what it means. They're just not comfortable with it, so they want to say it's just not really clear what God meant there. 
it's a message to mankind, not to angels, not to, you know, lower life forms, but to humanity. And then we read it's written with perfect accuracy in the original languages of Scripture so that it's communicated in Hebrew and some Aramaic in the Old Testament, Koine Greek in the New Testament, but in the original revelation, in the original recording, in the original what's called the autographs of Scripture, that's where inerrancy applies. Inerrancy doesn't apply to your King James Bible. That's going to really shake up some of those King James-only people. It doesn't apply to the New King James or to the New American Standard or the ESV or RSV or NRSV or any of the other translations. It doesn't even apply to your Greek text or your Hebrew text. It applies to the original. And there's corruption that occurred at some places And because we have a multitude of manuscripts, we have more manuscripts related to the New Testament than we have of any other ancient document. By an order of over five or 6,000 either complete manuscripts or partial manuscripts or citations of the New Testament, if we lost, uh, if we had no access whatsoever to, uh, to the New Testament... We lost that. We could go back and go through all the writings of the of the early church fathers and their sermons, and we could almost reconstruct the entire New Testament just from the quotations that we have in in the, in the uh, early church fathers. So it, it's remarkable. And yet, when we look at things like uh, the Gallic Wars of Caesar, and we look at the Iliad and the Odyssey, and we think, "Oh, this is exactly what what." Uh, what was originally written, many of those works are four or five to eight hundred years after the original writing. I mean, the oldest that we have, we may have one manuscript or two manuscripts, and they're eight or nine hundred years after the original writing. And we don't question their authenticity. But with the Bible, we have hundreds of manuscripts within just a few decades of their uh, uh, of their original writing, and yet modern scholars come along and say, well, we can't trust it. It's a different standard. So it's perfect accuracy in in the original languages. And then we go on to read in the definition the very words bearing the authority of divine authorship. And so this relates to a doctrine called... Uh, the self-authenticating knowledge of God's Word. If we were to hear God speak audibly right now, not one person here would say, who was that? It would carry its own authentication. We would all fall on our faces before God because we would know, because that's how God has made us, that we would know that that was his voice. The Word of God is self-authenticating and carries its own authority. And so we see things, phrases throughout the Bible, and I'll close with this because I know we're running a little late. Uh, the, the Bible writes and uses phrases like, Thus says the Lord. 415 times in the Old Testament you have the, the exact phrase, Thus says the Lord. 44 times you have the phrase, God said. 
232 times you have the phrase, the Lord said. 138 times we have the phrase, the Lord spoke. 58 times we have the phrase, the word of the Lord came to me. You also have other phrases that occur, such as the Lord spoke to Moses. That would be included in the phrase, the Lord spoke. But you have all of these statements indicating that the Bible, what was written, comes directly from God. And that is the self-authenticating nature of Scripture. So we'll go on next time, and we'll look at some more evidence. How does the Bible treat itself? Does the Bible treat all of itself as being from the Word of God, or does it treat parts of the Revelation as being not quite as accurate as other parts? What's the internal evidence in the Scriptures? Father, we thank you that you have given us your Word and that all Scripture has been breathed out by you. Not most, not some, not the majority, but all has been breathed out by you. It originated with you. And we need to come to grips with that in our own lives, that you have spoken. And the the old saying that God said it, that settles it, I believe it, applies. That because you have spoken, We may not fully understand all of its implications or ramifications, but nevertheless, we need to start from the presupposition that you have spoken, and that makes it absolute truth. And therefore, we are to trust it, we are to rely upon it, and it needs to challenge our thinking at the very uh, very core of what we believe and what we think, which calls for us to reflect upon our thinking, to go back and to examine it under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, thinking through all aspects of our belief system and assumptions that we might conform every aspect of our thinking uh, to your word. While the challenge us to do that, may we be distinctive because of that, because we trust your word more than anything else. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.